BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. On today's California Report magazine, sexual harassment in high school. We meet a 16-year-old who wants her teachers to better protect teens from catcalling and groping. I would be walking to class and somebody would come up to me. They would keep hugging me and keep hugging me and like won't let me go. Then it gets to a point like, okay, I said stop. Like, And we'll hear from some Californians in their 80s, 90s, and 100s about their secrets to living a good life. Happiness is a state of mind. You can be happy with what you have or miserable with what you don't have. Plus, we visit one of Sacramento's oldest restaurants where powerful lawmakers dine on pot stickers and banana cream pies. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Imagine a woman comes forward to say at her job, male co-workers regularly slap and grope women. And everybody chimes in with sexual slurs. Even worse, the boss punishes some women who complain. In the era of Me Too, that workplace would probably come under fire. But sometimes teen girls deal with this kind of behavior regularly at school. Reporter Lee Romney introduces us to one of them in Oakland and tells us what her school district is doing to better protect girls like her. Hey, 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 listen up, listen okay. up. Hey, 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 what's up? I'm in a squat portable classroom at a park in East Oakland where teenagers with the nonprofit group Girls Inc. are talking about rape culture and the oversexualization of girls as part of an after school program. This topic hits home for Christiana Vaughn. We find a quiet place to talk. I would be walking to class and, like, I wouldn't want to be bothered or anything if somebody would come up to me and hug me I'd be like okay like enough it's enough like stop hugging me you know and then they'll keep hugging me and keep hugging me and like won't let me go when it like then it gets to a point like okay I said stop like stop you know Christiana has a big warm smile and long hair she's 16 and she goes to Skyline High I've seen when a boy would like grope on a girl or like touch her inappropriately and then she'll stand up and be like what are you doing like you know have an outburst and the teacher will have to send her out instead of like asking the boy like what are you doing and send him out and then there's the sexualized name calling almost every corner you turn you could hear a boy calling a girl a hoe i have never heard a teacher ever say hey don't call her a hoe 
Skyline High's lead principal, Nancy Bloom, says adults at her school do step in when they spot inappropriate behavior or hear students using slurs. When we know it, know about it, see it, witness it, we absolutely deal with it. I would like to think it happens every time this comes up. I couldn't say with certainty that that is the case. If teachers send girls out of class, she says, it's to help maintain a calm learning environment. Still, Bloom agrees that sexual harassment is a problem and there's work to be done. These are students, these are children we're raising. It's incumbent upon us as adults to help them learn the right ways to navigate the world. Christiana's experiences, it turns out, are not unique to Skyline High School. A couple years ago, Oakland Unified participated in a study of girls of color conducted by the group Alliance for Girls. It brings together dozens of organizations that serve girls in the Bay Area, including the one Christiana belongs to. The most unexpected finding? Almost all of them experienced sexual harassment, and black girls reported being punished and misunderstood when they tried to stand up for themselves. Christiana of Skyline High wasn't part of the focus groups, but she echoed the findings in just about every way. African-American girls, like it happens to us so often, like it is a part of our daily lives. The Alliance for Girls recently convened educators and advocates from throughout the Bay Area who interact with girls of color. I'm also excited because this is kind of the follow-up to the work we've done with Oakland Unified School District. So I know many They of talked you about the study and the changes that came out of it. Emma Mayerson, the Alliance for Girls Executive Director, said in focus groups, the girls spoke to everything from pinching and touching and slapping asses when they were not given permission to do so, um, and also feeling really betrayed by the adults in their life for not stepping in. But Mayerson says the study was a turning point for the school district. What's different about Oakland Unified School District is they chose to face that reality, and even more so to work with us in passing a new sexual harassment policy that was deeply responsive to what young women of color were saying. A new policy. The district's Board of Education passed it last summer with a ton of input from community groups, district officials, and the girls themselves. It spells out what constitutes harassment, from unwanted leering and name-calling to spreading of sexual rumors and, of course, battery. Schools have to provide mental health support to accusers and look into whether there's a systemic problem. And students who file complaints now have a right to know what's happening throughout the process because under the old policy... If they'd report an incident and then just not hear back, not hear back, not hear back, nothing. It all sounds like a heavy lift for a district facing a serious budget crisis, but the girls are leading the way. You might have heard of school programs that focus on the needs of African-American boys. Well, after the Alliance for Girls study came out, the district decided it was time the girls had their own initiative, too. It's called African-American Female Excellence. It's run by Nzinga Duga. She tells me young women from her program will be heading into the schools, too, as trainers to lead workshops and help craft skits about sexual harassment. What we can do is we can create a culture of learning and understanding and support, and it makes it okay and safe for the adults to say, actually, this is not tolerable, but not only that, we're gonna teach you what is the right behavior. The district has already trained 95% of its school principals on the new policy. 
Skyline's Nancy Bloom will get trained later this month. But when I talked to Skyline sophomore Chrissiana Vaughn, she was skeptical that anything would change. Then she let herself begin to imagine what a school free from sexual harassment might look like. I feel like we would be able to walk around the school with like, like without our backpacks hanging down low to cover us or like, you know, having to be aware of who's around you all the time. A few weeks ago, Christiana made a big decision. She left Skyline High School. She's now attending a continuation school for girls only, so she can catch up on credits with what she says are way fewer distractions. This fall, she plans to enroll in an Oakland charter school. For The California Report, I'm Lee Romney in Oakland. been telling a lot of stories about life in high school lately. In fact, last week, we turned our whole show over to high school students for a youth takeover. We're broadcasting this week's show from Richmond High School in the Bay Area. I'm Tyrus Ammons, an 18-year-old senior. I like to call myself an artist and uh, a gamer, but I'm very excited to be on the show. Something new, and um, kids get a little bit of exposure to show the world what they go through in their lives. Tyrus co-hosted the show, and he brought us some intense personal stories from teens, facing homelessness, figuring out what it means to be a man, navigating the politics of race and culture, and sharing some of their secrets. I felt the world go silent. In my head, all these thoughts kind of flashed through. What are we going to do? Like, where are we going to go? He would tell me to not show any emotion or feelings because that's what a man would not do. Dance makes me feel like I can fly, but it also translates into my biggest fear, vulnerability. And though it's hard not to run away from it in my relationships, I can't run away from myself. If you missed that special, go download it on our podcast. Just look for the California Report magazine, The Bear Wearing Earbuds, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So now we're going to do a 180 from teenagers and hear instead from folks at the other end of life. People shouldn't worry about aging. Enjoy yourself. Try to help other people. Listen to other people. I think they should live as much in the moment as they can. Uh, you worry so much when you're younger about what other people think and the impression and needless worry. It's not important. and You don't really learn that until you're older. The voices of some of the California seniors featured in the new documentary film, Lives Well Lived. They range in age from 75 to 100 years old, and they share their secrets and insights to living a meaningful life. Filmmaker Sky Bergman is a professor at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and she joins us now on the California Report magazine. Hi, Sky. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So this project really began with your own grandmother, who was 103 years old. Tell me a little bit about her. My grandmother was amazing. She was an incredible cook and never wrote a recipe down. So I thought I'd better film her because otherwise I'd never know how to do it after she was gone. And then when she was turning 100, I went back with her to Florida for her birthday, and she was still working out at the gym and lifting weights. I came back from that trip, and I put together a little one-minute clip of her at the gym and her words of wisdom, and I just thought, wow, I want to find other people out there that are as much an inspiration as my grandmother is to me. 
Let's hear a little clip from your grandma because she does have so much wisdom. Being kind and being nice to people, no matter where you are, no matter what the situation, it always comes back to you. And that's my philosophy of life. And I love every minute of it. I love life as it is. And that's why I like to live. I want to live. I want to see more and learn more. A lot of the people in this film went through really pivotal things in World War II, fleeing Europe, being in an internment camp for Japanese Americans. How do you think that shaped their optimism? I mean, so many of these people are so incredibly alive and vibrant and positive about the world. I think that they really um, had to remain positive in order to get through some of those really difficult times. As Sevi Justison says in the film, your attitude's the only thing you have control over. And there are times when you can't control the, the situation or the things that are happening in your life, but you can control your attitude about how you're living your life. You found some amazing characters like Emmy Cleaves, who's 86 and still teaching yoga. I teach because I think it's so important. It's a passion, it's an obsession. I want as many people to do yoga as possible because it is a priceless gift that you can give to yourself. Health is really where everything is at. The quality of your life is completely governed by the state of your health. At my age, if I hadn't done yoga, I'd probably be sitting here, you know, and, and uh, be sad and tired. I met her because I do the Bikram yoga that she does, and it was very important for me to interview somebody that was still doing it in their 80s because I want to be doing that the rest of my life. Her story of leaving Riga during the war and her and her mom were trying to escape and they ended up on a train platform and she was handing up her bags to her mom and the doors of the train just shut and she was left on the train platform by herself at the age of 15. And I put myself in that situation. I think, what was I doing at 15? How would I have reacted? And I, it just, I can't even imagine. Emmy's amazing because she still is teaching yoga, still practicing yoga. And I think that's a remarkable role model to look up to. A lot of people in this film are artists. You've got photographers, sculptors, musicians, and, you know, their passion kind of keeps them young. I really liked when you spoke with Blanche Brown, who's an amazing dancer, and you asked her what advice she had for younger people. Life goes by so quickly, and you, most young people are in such a hurry to get to the next part of, of their life or whatever they're doing that they don't really take time to just enjoy what's happening right now. So Blanche Brown is just amazing. She still teaches an Afro-Haitian dance class every Friday in San Francisco. And she's just full of life. I just I love her to pieces. She's just a wonderful, wonderful woman. What was the best piece of advice, the thing that really stuck with you from talking to all of these senior citizens? Well, I'll tell you the three things that I think that they had in common is that I think um, the first thing was that they all had something that they were passionate about doing every day and something that they really believed in and they all wanted to continue learning. We think of Rose Albano Ballesteros, who's six units shy of getting her PhD at the age of 80. Um, and the second thing was that they were all surrounded by a good support group, whether it was family or friends. And the surprising thing is it didn't have to be family. Friends, you know, it just was that they weren't alone. And thirdly, they really were all very positive people and saw life as a glass is half full rather than half empty. We really need to just live in the moment and think about our attitude and maybe just have a more positive attitude about things. Sky Bergman, thanks so much for talking with us. 
Thanks so much for having me. Sky Bergman is the filmmaker behind the new documentary, Lives Well Lived. We're standing in the kitchen of one of Sacramento's oldest restaurants, surrounded by huge woks sizzling with fragrant oils and Chinese noodles. Cooks are chopping fresh vegetables and blocks of white tofu into cubes. And when we turn the corner... This is where we make the uh, banana cream pies, our prep room here in the back. That's right. Banana cream pies, not a typical Chinese dish. But Frank Fat, who started this restaurant, was not a typical guy. For this installment in our Family Biz series, Bianca Taylor brings us a story about an eatery where the founder is as beloved as the food. It takes something special to keep a restaurant running in the same place for 80 years. That something special is Frank Fat. Here's his son, Jerry. My dad wasn't actually a chef, per se. He knew good food, and uh, unfortunately you don't get to meet him, but it was his personality, I think, that uh, brought him into the business. Jerry Fat is the CEO of what's now the Fat Family Restaurant franchise. We're sitting in the dining room of the original Frank Fats in downtown Sacramento, one block away from the state capitol building. The long, narrow space is lit with red lanterns, Chinese tapestries and art decorate the walls. And if these walls could talk, they would tell you a lot about California political history. We became known as the third house of the Capitol. We've had some famous deals that have been made in the booths or the restaurants here on the back of cocktail napkins. Including a famous deal brokered in 1987 by then Assembly Speaker Willie Brown, which changed the state's civil liability laws. And more than 30 years before that, then-California Governor Earl Warren was a regular here. President Eisenhower appoints Governor Earl Warren of California as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The 62-year-old Californian... Warren's appointment to Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court was big news. When Frank Fat was in D.C., he paid his friend a visit. And he invited my dad into his chambers, and the, he said the Chief Justice opened the drawer, uh, had a shot of... Uh, whiskey and they had a drink in his chambers. For a Chinese immigrant to be toasted by a chief justice in the 1950s seems incredible. And it is. But Frank Fat's whole incredible story doesn't begin there. Frank immigrated to the United States from Canton, China in 1919. He was 16 years old. And he came here for a better life and, and actually to search for his father, my grandfather. Frank and his father didn't have a great relationship. When he finally tracked him down in Ohio. It was like he gave him, gave my father some money and say, go make a life, and, and that was it. So Frank took the money and went to Sacramento where his uncle lived. In 1939, he had saved up enough to buy an old Italian restaurant downtown. This was the beginning of Frank Fats. The restaurant quickly became a fixture for state workers, drawn in by Frank's warm, outgoing personality. But even when people flocked to the restaurant to eat his Chinese food, 
Frank faced discrimination for being Chinese. His son Jerry says when they were kids, neighbors organized to prevent them from buying a house downtown. So they had to move way out into the suburbs. But that didn't stop Frank. He was an activist in a subtle way. He wanted to uh, bring Chinese culture to the people of Sacramento. He founded the Asian Pacific Rim Festival, which features Chinese food, dance, and music, like the Capital Chinese Orchestra. It's still one of Sacramento's longest-running street festivals. Aside from a few remodels, not much has changed at Frank Fats in 80 years. They're still serving up heaping plates of their classics, honey walnut prawns, steak and oyster sauce, and Peking duck. Well, actually, there are a few more plaques on the wall. It is now 8.44, and new this morning, Sacramento's oldest restaurant is soon going to be honored with a very prestigious award. It's kind of like the Oscars of food. In 2013, Frank Fats won the James Beard American Classics Award. It's an award that honors a restaurant for having timeless appeal and quality food that reflects the character of its community. The award really gets at the heart of what makes Frank Fats such a beloved institution the Fat family. Jerry has five siblings who were all involved in the family business at one time or another. And even though Frank died in 1997, today there are nephews, aunts, and even in-laws working in everything from recipe development to restaurant operations. Like most immigrant family, you're just expected to help out in the business. When it comes to the next generation of fats taking over, Jerry says it's up to them. He knows running a restaurant is hard work, especially when your name is literally attached to the business. Restaurant is so personal. It's not like running a factory, you know, where you could just turn on the machines and have somebody watch it. Whether or not the fourth generation picks up the baton, Jerry Fat is happy to keep his father's legacy alive. One pot sticker and banana cream pie at a time. For the California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor in Sacramento. We all know that a lot of Californians are having a hard time paying skyrocketing rents. You may also know folks who are paying enviable rents in today's market because they're living in a rent-controlled apartment. So it's no surprise that this election year, the idea of rent control is coming up in a lot of California communities as activists across the state try to get measures on their local ballots. KCRW's Saul Gonzalez takes us to Santa Monica, one of the first California cities to enact rent control, to ask, does it work? Welcome. Oh, lovely. Robin Sherry's Santa Monica apartment is pretty terrific. On the fifth floor of an oceanfront building, her two-bedroom, two-bath place gets great light, is spacious, and has Instagram-ready views. I love the morning sun, southern exposure, it works for me. And I can see the Pacific Ocean. Right. And the beach. And Catalina on a clear day. Robin's had this view for a long time. She moved here 35 years ago when she was in her 20s and working as a secretary at a film studio. I paid $421 in 1983. I mean, who didn't love that? In the decades since, Robin's rent has gone up, and it's not the cheapest you'll find. But for an apartment this size and in this location, what she's paying in 2018 is still a deal. It's $1,615.43. You know it down to the penny. 
I too. To understand why Robin pays that relatively bargain rent in 2018, you have to go back in time to 1979. It was the year the Knacks My Sharona topped the music charts. Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep battled it out on screen in the movie Kramer vs. Kramer, and voters in Santa Monica, who were really worried about soaring housing costs, passed one of America's toughest rent control laws, limiting how much landlords could raise rents from one year to the next. Denny Zane, who later went on to become mayor of Santa Monica, was a young housing advocate then and remembers tenants' fears. Well, they had literally no protections, no eviction protections. There were no limits on rent increases at all. It was just whatever the landlord would do. No limits. No limits. And it was not uncommon. Back, back in those days, you know, a $100 a month rent increase was a whopper. But rent control limited those rent increases from 1% to 3% a year, enforced by a five-member elected rent control board. Apartment tenants loved the changes. Apartment landlords, not so much. Because it was uh, an e economic as well as a political revolution. That's Wes Wellman. He's a longtime Santa Monica realtor and property owner who's loathed rent control since the day voters passed it here. He says they were duped by activists pushing a radical political agenda. The political agenda was to make Santa Monica a laboratory for a utopian progressive theme park, if you will, in which every progressive ideology could be implemented. It was Wes, along with other landlords, who started calling the community the People's Republic of Santa Monica. And things could get hot between pro and anti-rent control groups in city hall meetings. And there was yelling back and forth and insults hurled. I even remember one rent board commissioner that had death threats and had the police park a car in front of his house for a period of time. So yes, it got very intense. So what are you giving me? I'm giving you my homemade granola. Back in her Robin apartment, Robin Sherry says her opinion of rent control hasn't changed since she moved here. Rent control means what to you? So it means everything. Now in her 60s and retired and living off of her savings after a serious back injury, Robin says rent control has allowed her to live a decent life in good times and bad. So it's allowed me to do other things. When things were better for me financially, it allowed me to travel. I didn't have to think about what I needed to buy. I could just buy it because my money wasn't going to my rent. I, I couldn't be happier. I owe so much to rent control. But Wes Wellman says although it's helped some people like Robin, rent control has largely failed to do what it was supposed to do in Santa Monica, keep housing affordable and the community economically diverse. So uh, over time, uh, rent control changed the demographics of Santa Monica from being a middle-income suburban community to a high-income, largely white uh, haven for affluent single people. And Wes Wellman has a point. In the years since Santa Monica enacted rent control, this city has boomed. Once sleepy neighborhoods like where I am, Third Street Promenade, have been revived with new stores and attractions, and thousands of jobs have been created in Santa Monica, a lot in tech and new media. But while all that's happened in this seaside community, Santa Monica hasn't become more affordable to live in. Actually, quite the opposite. The city has some of the highest housing prices in the country, with modest one 
one-bedroom apartments, regularly renting for over $3,000 a month. And rent control or no rent control, that shows no signs of changing anytime soon. For the California Report, I'm Saul Gonzalez in Santa Monica. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Howard Gelman. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. David Marks is our web producer. And Nadine Sabai is our intern. Our team also includes Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.